All right, Catherine, how are you doing? I am good. How are you? Good. Thanks we for doing this. Working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, these things have been not always working as smoothly as I'd like to get them started. Um, it's the it's the magic of technology. It takes a few years. Yeah, new technology. So over time, we'll get this all worked out. But I've been uh, following you on Twitter for a little while, and um, I know you follow me on Twitter. And, and I think we have a lot of shared interests, so I thought you'd make a great guest. Um, you like to talk about um, a lot of cultural topics, a lot of technological or futurist sort of topics. So where did this interest come from? Like, is it something you've had since you were really young or is this a more recent thing? Yeah, some of it is more recent and some of it. I've always been sort of a, a geek about technology, I think. I was really into gadgets and inventions and just like very futuristic sort of technology for a very long time. I sort of, uh, you would think that I like science fiction movies as a result, but actually, and I do, but I like the ones that seem to, you know, focus a little bit more on things that are coming soon, things that are going to affect us like as humans, like Gattaca, for example. Yeah. I, I don't know. If oh, I love Gattaca. That. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great science fiction movie and, and is going to be very, very relevant to us pretty soon. It's <laughs> uh, not already. Um, but it's, um, but I, I've always, the things that I loved writing about were like film and uh, I became a travel addict. I've been obsessed with like, spies and things like that and so I looked at spies in pop culture so I wrote a lot about that uh, where I started getting more interested over time is psychology and sort of how our society works and I those were not things that I necessarily wrote about in the past um, for various reasons I was always really interested in psychology I almost went into it and I used to read a lot of books about how the brain works and even hypnosis and um, interrogation techniques, which <laughs> I, I use for my interviewing. Uh, so that was something that I really um, always had a keen interest in. But in terms of observing how our society works and like talking about that, that's something a little bit newer to me. Um, and I think, you know, there've been a lot of changes in my life that caused me to become more keen to talk about it and more willing to talk about it. Yeah. One book I recommend is The Sensory Order by F.A. Hayek. If you haven't read that, I'm a big Hayek guy for libertarian reasons, obviously, <laughs> but he also wrote a book about how the brain works. And it's a fascinating read. Um, one of the mo more difficult books I've ever read. And when I tell people I've read that book, I, I often get laughed at, but um, because it's, it's, even for Hayek, a rather complicated um, piece of literature. And I'm not sure I understood every sentence in the book, but uh, it is really worth reading. So what are, what are some of those changes? Like what changed in your life that made you more interested in certain aspects of society and culture and, and yeah. all the topics you, you write and talk about? Well, I was going through a period of time where I felt extremely lonely in my thoughts and I was too afraid to share them with other people because of some of the cultural things that are happening today where sort of we have this 
a lot of intolerance of, of opinions in the culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was worried that expressing some of these opinions would cause, or thoughts really, it would, you know, cause people to get mad at me, <laughs> cancel me, all these things, which is not necessarily untrue. But um, over time, I, I slowly started having more open conversations with people just generally. And I found that a lot of the concerns that I had, other people had too. And um, when we were able to sort of talk about it in person, uh, we were able to really have great discourse. And I felt less lonely but also, you know, I, I did have a bit of a cancel culture moment in my life. Um, so it, in my case, um, just to kind of briefly go into it, I ran a group for uh, writers um, basically offering jobs on Facebook. And it was a pretty popular group. It was about 30,000 members. It was specifically open to women. And somebody, you know, did this colossal, horrible thing and posted a, a job opportunity at Fox News. And people just got incredibly mad and started atta- personally attacking that person. You know, how do you sleep at night and things like that? And I had jumped in and sort of said, well, you know, let's let's not have personal attacks here. Let's keep this to jobs and let's keep politics out of it. And we've come together and we've come apart so much. Let's just come together. And I really thought it was an innocent message, but it was enough to really get people very angry at me and called me like a white supremacist and all all sorts of lovely things. And now in retrospect, I'm like, I'm sort of past that. But at the time it was, um, it was a weird, it was a weird moment and I kind of escalated and I was doxxed and people tried to reach out to editors to cancel me and harassed me and downvoted content I had. So it was quite a quite an ordeal that I never expected to go through. But what was also happening is I was getting all these messages from people. I was getting all these emails saying, listen, you know, see what's happening. It's wrong. Uh, and, you know, but I'm so feel so ashamed because I can't speak out. I feel too scared. And I got a lot of those messages. Um, and so that was really what caused me to be more outspoken about these things, because I think it's so important to be able to speak in this culture. And what were your politics like? Did you ever think much about your politics causing you trouble? Like, were you, <laughs> did you think of yourself as um, right wing, as maybe people were describing you? Or- no. It's funny, I, I kind of have always avoided ever saying my politics because I felt like as a journalist, I should be neutral, yeah. at least publicly. So I never really said it. Um, I think at this point, I'm like, well, I've, I was thinking, I'm like, what are my politics? I'm not a right wing. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I think I have a lot of progressive views, actually, maybe some libertarian views. Um kind of all over the place depending on the issue and uh so no i didn't but i as a result of of some of this happening actually i got to know a lot of people who were conservatives or libertarian and there's a part of me that you know bought into a lot of uh stereotypes about people's Mm -hmm. beliefs and i was actually surprised to learn that most people did not have you know the views that i thought they did were you 
growing up, were you kind of a shy, quiet person? Were you a person who was maybe, um, were you sensitive? Uh, and <laughs> and yes. was it hard? Because I come from this place where I got into politics as sort of an introvert and as a pretty shy person. And maybe some of this world can come as a shock, you know, when you start getting attacked left and right. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, yeah, for me, I'm definitely someone I was brutally shy, incredibly sensitive. And I I was thinking about this today. I'm like a very agreeable person, actually. And now trying to, you know, behave in ways that are somewhat disagreeable, and maybe I'm more willing to occasionally be disagreeable for the right thing. But yeah, when people come at you that way, because I'd never do that to someone else. It, it mm-hmm. just, yeah, that's a difficult thing. Um, and also just being more public in any kind of way, more exposed. It's, it's, um, it's a strange feeling. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. not a comfortable feeling. I mean, how did you, how did you, how were you able to get out of your shyness and into, you know, what made you even go, Hey, I'm going to go into politics. <laughs> For me, it was sort of forcing myself because I thought I had, um, value I thought I could contribute to politics um, by pushing people away from this duopoly, from this idea that there's just two ways of looking at everything or even sometimes one way of looking at anything. I wanted to show people there were alternatives. And I felt I couldn't do that if I were just hiding away somewhere. I had to get out in public and that meant overcoming my fears of public speaking or, um, you know, being around a lot of people. I was always a good student, but, you know, in school, I was valedictorian at my high school. Um, but I also was not the kind of person who really wanted to be at the, the center of anything, the center of attention. And I forced myself to overcome that just by putting myself in tough situations, which was not easy at first. You know, like Mm you, you are, going to give a speech to a room full of people and at first even a room of 20 or 30 people can be daunting when you're not comfortable doing that but you sort of work your way through it and people are right people who tell you just practicing it can make a difference are right even someone who's introverted and shy i think can overcome a lot of that and um and so it was born out of necessity i just had to do it in order to accomplish some of my goals um and I don't know if, if you feel the same way that you feel like there's stuff you want to express to the world and this is part of the price is that you become a target. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I had a very, very short-lived uh, political experience, actually, where I decided <laughs> I want nothing to do with politics. <laughs> I had volunteered during an election just counting the the votes and mm-hmm. uh, and honestly completely out of curiosity I really didn't have any any real views or, or real interest and um, and then I got asked to be on the writing association for so a chair a communications chair and what I had learned is sort of well, it's very easy to get promoted in these early days if you sort of, you know, if you sound good enough and, and then, but you have to sort of align with everything that the, the official party line tells you. Mm-hmm. And then I felt like 
um, a lot of the people who were involved were business, small business owners who then got government contracts once the person was elected. And then, um, and then basically the person who goes into politics might go in with good intentions, want to do good things, but by a certain point they've compromised so much that by the time they have any kind of power, they are someone else. And I imagine some politicians are able to retain their sort of, <laughs> um, I guess, I don't know, idealism, but a lot probably don't. Like, how do you, how did you sort of manage that side of things? Well, I think partly because of how I got into it, um, so dedicated to the ideals that I was willing to put myself in situations that weren't comfortable for me. I was thereby in a better position to hold my ground and stand with my principles because it was never something I was really seeking. There are a lot of people who get into politics because they love the limelight. They want to be out there. They want to be like, you know, sort of the Washington DC version of Hollywood. And they want the acclaim. They, they want to be at those big functions and they want to be giving those big speeches. And for them, you can sort of see why they abandon their principles so quickly because yeah. really their end is not the principles. Their end is their own ego that they are the center of attention. For me, the end was the principles. That's what I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for these principles that I think will make the world a better place. And um, the means actually of fighting for those things made me uncomfortable, that I had to then be in public and do speeches and and do all these other things that weren't great for an introvert. Um, I think it allowed me to hold the line. I, that's why I think actually you know, you're being too generous a little bit about like – do do any of them stay true to what they believe? Very few. I mean, it's it's practically none. I I can look at Congress and probably think of only a few people who I who I feel stayed pretty true to their principles. Doesn't mean I necessarily agree with all their principles, but who stayed pretty true. And the rest, I would say, did not. And and it's overwhelming. It's it's well over ninety percent or ninety five percent. That you know, is, it's probably something like 99% abandon their whatever they claim their stated principles are. And here I thought you might argue with me and give me hope, but really just more than confirmed what I was feeling. No, it's a, like it's a lot worse than it's a lot worse than the general public um, recognizes. Wow. Well, see, to me, I feel like the kinds of people that we want to actually go into politics are almost never the kinds of people that do. Like what you said, it's true. There are people who want that spotlight or that want the power, whereas I see it as being, you know, it's a self-sacrifice. Somebody's already achieved a lot, but they're not looking for more. They're looking to give back. Um, I see it as a community service. And I would love to see people do it who are from unusual backgrounds, who are not from political backgrounds. 
you know, people who are inventors and poets and, you know, we, there yep. was a poet in, uh, in the Czech Republic. I mean, I thought that was quite an interesting thing. It can happen, but it doesn't happen often. I mean, Zelensky, I guess, is an actor. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I haven't exactly followed his political career until um, more recently, but he also has a law background. So it's a bit different. Yeah, he's a he's a comedian, right? He's a comedian actor. So I guess he's yeah. on a comedy show. Comedians are very, I mean, to be a comedian, you have to be pretty sharp, actually. Yeah, I think that's right. So you were um, you were born in Ukraine, correct? I was, yeah, back when it was part of the USSR, actually. And when did you, um, when did you come to the United States? Well, I, I actually... Um, I did a bit of a tour around the world. So actually, I I moved to Israel from from there, and then I moved to. And at China. what age? What age was I that? Was, I was six when I moved. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I came to North America when I was twelve. So was and... it which which move was more difficult? Well, I think so. The memory of the move from the USSR to Israel was very vivid, and I don't have a lot of memories before that, but specifically the process. And it was obviously a very um, <laughs> key one because uh, to leave that country you had or that whatever <laughs> union, you had to give everything away. You had to bribe people to get out. Um, and so we came with nothing, you know, we're very poor. And so that was a, a pretty monumental thing. And we went through like Romania and barely made the plane. So just that is so embedded in my memory mm -hmm. as a child. And then growing up in a country like Israel was very unusual um for various reasons but i think as a child you're just you learn languages quicker you adapt and then when i came to i came to canada um it was it was more exciting because I, I i was i remember finding a letter that my parents were being invited for um you know a meeting to, to apply for a for a citizenship and I think I must have like unsealed the envelope or something in a sneaky way because I don't know how I got access to it otherwise. Mm -hmm. But I remember feeling excited uh, to go to this new place. Um, so it was it was but but every move was actually quite difficult in a way because it was always a different culture that you were moving towards. So I I made an assumption you were in the United States, but are you in Canada? I am in Canada. Okay. I did live I lived in New York, though, but I am in Canada now. Okay. Yeah. So um, you're a Canadian citizen. I am. Yeah. So which part of Canada do you, do you live in? I live in uh, the west side, so in Vancouver now. Oh, okay. All the way all the way over there. Pretty far from us then. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm over in Michigan, so it's. Uh, I guess we're both kind of up north, but you know, far away from each other. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> You've been to Michigan. Yeah. Have you been to Vancouver? I haven't, no. I mean, not that I remember. It's possible I did as a child, but I'd have to ask my parents. I don't I don't think I did. It's okay. It's not a very memorable place. <laughs> so so um when you when your family left Ukraine, um or the USSR at the time, were you fleeing um something? Was uh, were you 
concerned for your well-being or was it just this place is not good for us we've got to get out of here that place was not good for us but especially being jewish uh, that was a big part of it i actually was just talking to my parents about it yesterday it was just uh you know in terms of people talk about systemic discrimination and that was like blatantly so um there so it's kind of interesting that under communism everybody is supposed to be the same you know everyone's equal but of course some animals are more equal than others it's just it was just so true um so that was a you know they they said that they sort of looked at me and they saw this girl that they have and who just wouldn't have any kind of future just wouldn't have choices wouldn't be able to speak and I, I asked my dad, what do you think I would have turned out like if I if I'd grown up there? Because my personality is just so <laughs> would not fit in very well in a place like that. And he said, well, you'd probably like secretly read things and, you know, maybe write things anonymously. But <laughs> So how many languages do you speak? Because presumably when you went to Israel, you, you learned Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, but um, did you, you didn't you didn't know that growing up, did you? No. Uh, so I, I learned Hebrew. Um, I speak Russian fluently. Um, so Russian, Hebrew. Um, I hope I speak English and I also learned French. <laughs> you, you definitely speak English. <laughs> Good. And, um, and why do you learn French? Uh, because in Canada you learn French or? Yeah, in is Canada that... you learn French. But, you know, it's interesting. I wish I learned it better because I was not a good good student. I would always, um, when I I'd try to distract my teachers. So I, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't do that well, but actually it came in handy because I, I worked in Morocco at one point and I tried to learn um, Arabic and I, I worked so hard on that. And when I got there, I realized like everyone actually also speaks French. So I was better right. off just like making my, improving my French. Yeah. And that can be um, a challenge to a language like Arabic where like different parts of the world, they speak so differently that you can't necessarily yeah. understand the dialect in one place versus another place. Well, I could say marhaba. That's probably all I remember. <laughs> yeah, place. exactly. So did did you find um, your knowledge of Hebrew helpful at all when you were thinking about Arabic? I think I can pronounce. Yeah, I think I, I can pronounce things a lot better than than you know a normal English speaking person would, just because it's it is so similar. So I, I think I can mimic the pronunciation better. Yeah, I I've been find it hard to remember now. I find it very difficult to learn languages. Like I I was maybe savant level. Like when I first came to Canada, um, I, people, I got mocked in the beginning because I had a weird kind of accent that was like Texan, British, <laughs> some weird mix because I had a tutor who had a Texas accent. Huh. And then, um, but people didn't realize I wasn't born there. So I, my parents say that, so they got called into, I had these meddling teachers. I really hate if they're listening to this, I hate you. Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> They called they they called my parents and they decided that I was I think they decided that I was like slow or something. And they made me do an IQ test, a math test, and an English test. And they called my parents and they're like, We don't understand this. Like she's like three grades above in math and her IQ is high, but her but she's half a grade behind in English. And my parents are like, Well, isn't that great? Like, what do you mean? We just said you're half a grade behind. She's half a grade behind. And they said, 
and, and they're like, well, she's only been living in Canada for two years, less than two years at that point. And mm -hmm. they didn't realize that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And it can be tough to learn languages as you get older. Like it just much harder. Yeah. Like now I can't do it. I try, you know, when I'm, I love to travel, so I just to be polite, I always try to learn a little bit just just out of respect, um, not to assume that people will know English. So at least to be able to say, hey, do you speak English? But in their language, the only language that I gave up on ever is um, Hungarian. I just <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been studying Hebrew on Duolingo. And oh, how's that it's just. Going? It, it's tough. It's tough because I've been going at it for a while and I only do a few minutes a day. So I, I don't have like hours and hours of, of time for lessons. But even at this age and even with, um, you know, my background in Semitic languages, I just find it challenging at this, you know, you know, being 41 years old and trying to learn a new language. It's just it's tough. No, uh, I, I, I absolutely struggle at this point. The only language, like I'd like to improve my French. I think I can get it to a better level and then maybe live in a French speaking country for a little bit just to get it immersed. And then, I mean, I mean, when you're immersed, you have no choice but to learn the language. So it's a completely different mm -hmm. experience too. I, I don't think I know, you know, even English and I'm a writer you know, I, I know grammar, and but I don't actually know it. Like, I don't know the rules. I sort of learned all of that intuitively, and I can just feel it, but I can't explain it. And uh, so I think that's sort of how I learned language, through feel, as opposed mm -hmm. to logic. And now, if I'm going to learn a new language, you know, that's not how I'd learn it. I don't think I can feel my way through it, you know. Yeah, there is a little bit of, of feeling your way through it. I found um, because my parents are Palestinian and Syrian. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we have I, I have a background in a Semitic language. And when I am working on Duolingo and I'm studying Hebrew, I do imagine what it is in their native language, like how it might, how the sentence might flow when I'm thinking about the translation. And it's helped me to translate things from English into Hebrew. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, it's still, a, it's still very much a challenge. When you learned Hebrew as a child, you probably didn't think much of it, right? It was very natural. And um, yeah. you probably don't even remember like, oh, this is a new language. No, I think I was just thrown into it. And I don't know, but, but I do think I was remarkably like, I think I had an exceptional memory for an and ear for languages when I was a child. Like, like I said, now, not at all. I think I also had, I had a freakish memory in general. I think I, I had almost like a photographic memory and now it's the absolute opposite. And it's been like that for a long time. Like I don't have a good memory and it's weird to go from having like a nearly photographic memory to absolutely horrendous memory. <laughs> I also have, I don't know if you heard it, it's called prosopognosia is the, the fancy word for it, but it's uh, a facial blindness. So um, it's, it's very mild, but, um, but it's basically you can't really remember faces very well or recognize faces hmm. rather. So, or even when I look at myself, there is some kind of a, a weird, um, 
you know, I, I don't always reckon, I don't associate my visual of myself with what I see. And how do you get diagnosed with that? Is that something you recognize that you are not able to remember faces? I was telling a doctor of mine <laughs> about, you know, how, how I struggle with this. And she said, here's an article by Oliver. It was Oliver Sacks, uh, I think, right? I hope that's the right name. It's the, it was this brilliant neurologist. He's, he's passed away since. But he wrote a book, uh, The Woman Who Couldn't, Who Mistook Her Husband for a... Oh, like yeah. A hat like a something. hat. Yeah. Yeah. So I read it and I'm just like, oh, this this makes a lot of sense. Now, I, you know, mine is really, really mild compared to to his. Um, but I do struggle like if like I've had a time where there was someone I was dating and I didn't expect to see them. Mm -hmm. And they showed up somewhere where I wasn't expecting them. And so I didn't recognize the person <laughs> <laughs> that relationship. And, didn't and this is someone you were dating. Yep. While I was dating them. <laughs> How long had you been dating this person? I mean, I've known that person for many years, <laughs> even before so, I dated that person. Right. So. so, boy, so that can be that can be something. And is it? Um, this must be pretty stressful for you, then, right? Like, do you get? Uh, it, it does it make you embarrassed then when that happens? Yes. And, yeah. And but have I you struggled. been? Well, when I go to events, for example, I, I used to go to, you know, pre these crazy pandemic days, I used to go to a lot of events, especially since I worked in the film industry. And, you know, remembering people and remembering their names and faces, people appreciate that. And I'm terrible at both. So often I would meet people and I wouldn't know who they are. Whereas I'm really good with contacts. Like if I talk to the person, I'll remember where in the room we were, what we mm -hmm. talked about, but I just don't remember their face. And so I have often pretended to know people when I didn't. And sometimes that it has gotten me into trouble too, <laughs> but I yeah. get very embarrassed. And I definitely yeah. have a little bit of social anxiety around that, like a lot actually. Well, I can, I can imagine. I mean, I, um, I don't have the same condition, but in politics, you run into so many people that it right. obviously becomes impossible to remember every single person who's talked to you or taken a picture with you or whatever it so might what be. So what do you do? Do you have like a trick? Um, I tend to remember things a little bit contextually. Like I might not totally remember a person's face or name, but if they describe a situation, like I was talking to you about this or this mm -hmm. is where we met and this is what we did or discussed, I can usually remember things like that even if I don't remember um, the name. I found in politics, at least, I have a little bit of an advantage in that people are much more understanding. Um, you know, really? if if someone comes up to you, they're often understanding. Like, you're not going to remember me, but this is this is how I know you. And it does get sometimes weird where someone that I know pretty well says to me, like, you may remember me from whatever. I'm like, <laughs> of course I know you. Like, you know, like, so it's – it's um. It cuts both ways in that sense that they sometimes overdo it in introducing themselves or reintroducing themselves to me. Um, but for you, do you now essentially forgive yourself more? Like was it harder before you thought like maybe I've got a condition? Maybe I've got something actually going on in my mind? Was it harder to sort of – yeah, you're still, you, know, you still feel embarrassed. People still think I'm an asshole and, and I think I'm an asshole to an extent uh, because 
I mean, but you're not. You're not like it's not. Um, Sometimes you know, people feel like I tried harder. I, I mean, I develop. I develop tricks. I do. Like I'll have. There is an actor that I met actually. His name was Dustin, and I said, "Okay, so I'm going to remember you, and I'll associate you with Dustin Hoffman." And then it's funny because that same actor actually became fairly well known after that, and I <laughs> ran into him again, and I said, "Well, see, I remember you." but I only remember you because I had that name association for you. So I try to do name association. So I guess some of it is like, how much effort will I make um, for that individual? <laughs> but if it's like a conversation where we didn't really have any kind of real connection, I don't feel as bad because, well, we didn't really connect. Like, you know, there's yeah. so much small talk that happens and it's not that meaningful. What's meaningful is like, you know, I'd rather spend, you know, an hour talking to a random person in a room, but really have a meaningful conversation than, you know, a bunch of, you know, my industry, there's a lot of times where you're, you're talking to someone and there's, you can see their eyes kind of wander around the room to see if there's somebody more important that they're trying to find. Or I've often made up um, because somewhat people can be somewhat impressed by, by my credentials. So, so what I do sometimes is I'll, I'll go to a party and I'll like make up if somebody asks me what I do for a living, I'll make something silly up. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm a wallpaper salesperson. I've done that one a few times. Yeah. I'm like the plus one or I wandered <laughs> into this. Uh, oh, I crashed this party. What is this? <laughs> right. So I do that to amuse myself. But that has backfired too, because, because of my facial blindness, I, um, managed to tell a very tall tale once and I had a bunch of people kind of listening to this ridiculous story of my origin story that I completely made up. And one of the people doing so turns out to be someone who knew me the entire time. <laughs> and I just didn't recognize him. <laughs> and he called me on it, but after other people left. But I think so, he was amused. <laughs> so do you find that it's especially challenging when – like you said, with the person you were dating, you saw that person in, in a new setting. If the person is wearing clothes that are unfamiliar or is in a place that's really weird, because I think that happens to some extent with all people, right? Like if I mm -hmm. if I go to um, a place where I see someone every day and they're always wearing a suit and then I suddenly see them wearing jogging shorts or something, it does become a little bit difficult to put two and two together. I mean – not maybe with someone you're dating, but <laughs> but is that like um, is that particularly a problem? Does that does that especially cause you difficulties? I mean, I think like any kind of handicap, you know, you kind of learn how to live with it. You you find little tricks of how how to deal with it. So over time, you don't notice it so much. So I don't know that it's causing you a lot of uh, grief, but it is a little bit stressful. It, it definitely, you know, I do feel embarrassed still, but you know, one day we'll have perfect recall of everything. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's all going to be in a database. Sure. We can talk about that later in the episode here um, because maybe we will have some kind of, you know, mem backup memory in our heads that allow us to recall things. Let's, um, shall we take a caller? Um, Okay, let's see. Priscilla, are you there? Hi there. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. 
Uh, this is a really fascinating conversation for me um, for a lot of reasons. Um, so I'm Romanian American. Um, my parents emigrated here in the 80s and 90s. Um, and so I'm really loving uh, some of the discussion here. Uh, you mentioned that, let me see, you passed through Romania. Catherine, is that right? Yes, I did. What part so- do you remember? I don't know what part, but I actually have a vivid memory of it. So, oh, you know, well, do you mind sharing? Thing, you don't have to. <laughs> no, no, sure. Um, it's a little bit embarrassing, but uh, no, I, there, there were a few things that happened in Romania that I know of. Hmm. So we weren't even supposed to end up in Romania and originally was supposed oh. to end up in the U.S., but somebody bribed somebody. And so fortune completely changed. Um, and somebody took our seats on the plane. <laughs> um, so ended up in Romania. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think there was like some su- sort of a support network, you know, and I guess they miscalculated my age because I was six and they got me hmm. baby food. And my parents <laughs> didn't realize it was baby food. It was Garber's baby food. And I was forced to eat this terrible thing. <laughs> as a six-year-old um so yeah that was that was like my memory and then there was some kind of a scam going on because you know that was that part of the world lots of scams going on yeah no kidding (laughs) cool that's so funny that you remember that so vividly it's funny how those things stick to us in our childhood the things that kind of Mark yeah, I remember people being very nice. You know, I, I had a, a, a fond memory, I think, but also just very bad baby food memory. Garber's is like dead to me. <laughs> Never giving any kids that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And I, I wanted to also just touch on something else that was discussed on, um, I guess, this cancel culture, I guess, as you, or you guys mm-hmm. have been discussing. Um, so a little bit about my story. Um, so I'm a Detroiter. Uh, I grew up here in the Metro Detroit area of Michigan. Um, and so although I have a a faith background, uh, I'm a Christian, Mm -hmm. um, I did not go to Christian schools. Um, I know Justin, you did go to a Christian high school. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Very cool. So although my family, uh, is very committed in the faith, uh, my father is a pastor um, I went to what's called an international academy school or an international baccalaureate school. Have either of you heard of this type of high school? Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had a very, uh, just for people who might not know, uh, so, and the one I went to, it's a public school, but you had to test to get in. I was only the second graduating class. Um, and if you got in, then you were able to have this um, education, which basically you were seeing every subject through an international lens, right? Um, and then after going to that school, graduating, um, I took a year off and went to law school right here in Detroit at Wayne State. Um, and so as a person of faith in a very, uh, I I guess, secular setting, high school, um, college. Sorry, I'm missing undergrad here. I also went to undergrad. Um, (laughs) um, I definitely 
felt a lot of the shaming uh, and Romanian culture is very um honor shame culture that's just how it is and the truth is i'm finding that a lot of that is happening here in the states and i experienced that as a person of faith in a secular setting um so i just wanted to hear what you guys have to say about that aspect so you're saying you you felt shaming that happened at your school yes a hundred percent so because i was a person of faith in a, a school education system where many people were not people of faith. There were, I, I grew up with a lot of atheists, agnostics, right? I went to school with a lot of atheists, agnostics, right? And I did go to school with, you know, Muslims and Sikhs and Buddhists um, and, and Jews, a, a large variety of people, which I think just made me a better person, a more well-rounded person. But I found that because of my faith as a Christian, there was uh, some of that shaming. And it wasn't, it wasn't um, official. It was more like a culture thing. I looked up one of your blog posts, Catherine, uh, where you talk about something similar. I think it's pinned on your Twitter. Um, and I think that happens a lot. I've talked to a lot of students within the secular schooling system who have had very similar experiences. So I don't know if you guys have heard of others or or if you guys have anything to say on those points. I have heard of others. I've had, you know, especially when people were reaching out to me uh, and have, people have been just reaching out to me just generally. Um, it's interesting because a lot of people, even when they have anonymous Twitter accounts, feel uncomfortable sharing and they're still sort of scared. And a lot of people did seem to express that um, as people, you know, who are religious, they they did feel some levels of, you know, discrimination or judgment or intolerance. And it is kind of common for people to be made fun of uh, for having faith. Like I, I actually <laughs> I had a whole Twitter feud with <laughs> just a fun one with uh, Ricky Gervais, who I actually really like, but he tends to like mock, uh, you know, religious people a lot and in ways that I don't like um and i'm an atheist you know so um i'm culturally jewish but i'm not um uh, and i practice the holidays but i'm not a religious person but i feel like that kind of intolerance it's the same kind of thing intolerance is intolerance right right? and having you know somebody having a faith doesn't (laughs) doesn't make them dumb or and there are some brilliant people who have been incredibly religious so um yeah but it's something definitely um that i've heard from other people and maybe it's also because sometimes that's a political you know i think there are probably more religious people on the right than there is on the left so maybe part of that is although i'd argue that um the left just sort of adopted its own religion <laughs> these days. So, uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah, I would I would say, um, Priscilla, that I went to public school for college. I went to the University of Michigan and oh, cool. to and to law school there, and I didn't really experience um, much shaming or animosity toward me um, as a Christian while gotcha. I was at Michigan. For the mm-hmm. most part, where I've experienced it, to the extent I do, is on social media, um, because I will sometimes talk about um, God, or I'll talk about 
being Orthodox Christian. And mm-hmm. there are times when people come on Twitter and will say, you know, there's no God or they'll, you know, they'll poke fun of it in a, in a more aggressive way. And mm-hmm. I, I think it just comes with the territory. It's hard for me to say what a typical person is experiencing because I'm a public figure. So I'm going to get attacked for all sorts of things, um, including, my, <laughs> including my religion. So I, I can't say what a typical person will experience in this respect, but um, for sure that is a growing problem. And I think it is something that is growing on the left in particular, where there is a mockery of religion or people who believe in something, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or Islam or, or any kind of religion. Um, but uh, Catherine's right that there's a growing religion on the left um, that is sort of, um, it's like a cultural religion that is different from the traditional religions that people have, but it's still a religion in a sense. Um, so they're just supplanting mm-hmm. these other religions with a new one. Yeah. You know, something that sort of surprised me is that I think for a lot of people, they really do need um, religion to have some sort of a fundamental um, rule book of how to behave. And I I didn't realize that. And I didn't realize to what extent. I have a friend who became a a minister, actually. And so she was working on her... she was working on a paper when she was in theology school and she interviewed me for it. And then she let me read it. And it really surprised me to learn that even people who weren't like particularly religious, but were only somewhat for them, that's where it sort of came from. And so I think what we're seeing uh, amongst people who have abandoned like traditional religions is perhaps a similar thing that they're needing that guidance and so it's coming from different from a different way. So, you know, um, the virtues of things, um, I think, is 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 their new religion. So <laughs> I'm trying to avoid a certain word, but it's it's really the, the, the I, temple of woke. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I got the I got the same um, impression. But yeah, I, I think that it is a growing problem. And um Because it's not about just having, um, you know, people are free to have whatever religion they want, including some kind of new cultural religion. But Mm -hmm. the problem is when it's used then as a weapon against all the other belief systems and the other belief systems are considered not valid, illegitimate, because you have, you know, your own belief system. And so that's where I think it becomes dangerous. This intolerance that's growing, this um, disrespect for people who have differences. That's where we have problems. Exactly. I mean, for me, it's always been like, you do you. I don't care what you do. I don't really have any particular judgments as long as you're not hurting somebody else. And so where it's at conflict now, it's where it does start hurting other people and some and certainly religions you know traditional conventional religions also can do that but Mm -hmm. you know a lot of people do practice them in ways where it's you know it only really affects them so why would i judge that um so i'm certainly very tolerant towards people's beliefs 
But where it crosses the line, and definitely we're seeing so much of that nowadays, is is um, where it's like, no, you have to do that, as I say, and you have to believe what I believe. You know, those those are problematic to me. Yeah. And I think both of you bring up uh, excellent points here. And I think it's happening on both sides, on the left and the right. I think, you know, there are some people who are on, quote unquote, the religious right, who, you know, they're trying to force that aspect or that understanding of their religion on others. And then there's people on the left, as you've said, who have kind of formed almost their own, quote, religion, right? And then you're at a, we're at a place now in society and culture, politics, even the church, to be honest, which is really sad for me as a person of faith, where there's so much partisanship that you can't even give someone the space they need to practice their faith, as you said, Catherine, in a way that does not, you know, infringe on the rights of another. And while I was in law school, I took a fascinating class on this on religious liberty. Uh, We looked at, you know, from the foundation of this country of the United States to present day, um, just this battle between, okay, you know, the the First Amendment, there's two aspects to this, right? There is freedom to practice or not practice a religion. Um, And then there is also the protection of these religious liberties. And there's also the separation of church and state, right? So I think many times uh, nowadays we're forgetting that this is a constitutional issue and that there are guarantees. And that's part of why, in a way, this country was formed, right? Puritans and all that history. This idea that, okay, you can have a religion, you cannot. There can be a place in society where all those types of different people groups can coexist peacefully. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I do think it is a bipartisan problem. I agree with you that there's people on the right and the left that are, um, are doing this. And, um, you know, that's why I like what Catherine does on Twitter. You know, I, I think that she is, um, looking at these problems, not in a right, left partisan way. That's what I try to do. Um, when I'm talking about things on social media, I think people get too bogged down in, uh, one side is good and the other side is bad. Um, you wouldn't believe how often I get, maybe you would believe whenever I talk about anything that, um, you know, Republicans and Democrats are doing, I get this backlash where people say it's not both sides. Stop both sides saying the the Mm -hmm. whole, like, I feel like this whole don't both sides thing is its own sort of aspect of this culture I'm talking about that is, um, increasingly there on the left, unfortunately, but it's a way of hiding your own problems, masking your own problems by saying it's not us, it's them. They're the problem. And, and we're going, we're, if only we got rid of the other people, everything would be good. But that's like, that is like the, that is itself the problem. Like they don't, they don't seem to realize that that mentality is the problem. Well, one thing I noticed when I was posting, when I started posting things on Twitter that were like more, you know, I, I don't consider it politics. I consider it like, you know, culture, cultural or, or something like that, um, human, humanistic. Um, but whenever I'd call out certain things, um, my followers who were on the right and my followers who are on the left both thought 
that I was talking about the other one. <laughs> oh, I, I, know, I totally know. I totally know what you're talking about. <laughs> I try to maintain that because, yeah, <laughs> but I hope That's they hilarious. also self-reflect a little bit too, right? Um, but, you know, you do, you do see it, you know, and, and I think there's a lack of nuance and specificity that I think also hurts a lot. There's these so many, like, blanket statements that people use um like uh the recent word this is more on the right but it's groomer you know any teacher who is you know talking about things that they don't consider appropriate school is a groomer well that's a very specific term and i don't think it addresses the complexity of the situation and it doesn't kind of bring people on board who uh, might agree with them on on some of these things, right? Um, so I think there's a lot of sort of divisive, extreme language that loses the nuance of of the situation and pushes people further away. Or when people say, you know, uh, what are I'm trying to think of, you know, you know, left. Whenever somebody just uses the word leftist or you know this is the lib libtard or something like that. Well, that just pushes people away because not everyone who is on that side subscribes to these beliefs. And even, you know, I try, I don't take it personally, but, but I just don't think that's very helpful. And likewise, you know, I hear things about the right where it's like, we, we've, we've indulged them. We've, we've, we've <laughs> given them the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. Right. That's a like, word they always use, the indulged. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a good word. I mean, we and and so I said in what ways and the person just like attacked me because <laughs> you know, I've not seen that at all <laughs> right. I've seen uh, a very kind of closed I mean I've, I've witnessed somebody talking about their um, nanny you know and uh, who was a Trump supporter and firing that nanny uh, because of that, even though he said, I felt really bad, but she's, you know, she was a really good nanny, but you can't have a person like that around my kids. By the way, she was a Mexican nanny. Um, so, you know, I think rather than engaging with people and figuring out why they think what they think and, you know, where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Where can you come together? Where can you compromise? Like people just push people away. And, and so, things get more radical, more extreme, and people feel ignored. And so that causes them to be more extreme. And I don't think it's a very healthy thing for society. Mm -hmm. Nothing else, you know, being curious, I think is, is, is key, right? I think, yeah. why not be curious, even about somebody that you completely disagree with, that curiosity, like, don't you just want to know why they think what they think? Yeah, I mean, I certainly do. So <laughs> well Good. thanks thanks Priscilla yeah thanks for having me on yeah I appreciate it so I think part of what's going on is that there's been a real move away from liberalism within um, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party toward illiberalism yeah and as a part of that the tactics have really shifted within the two parties. Um, I notice it, especially on the right, because I, I grew up 
in the Republican Party. I spent a lot of time in the Republican Party. I'm not in the Republican Party anymore. I'm a Libertarian Party member, and and I've always been a Libertarian. But I was hanging hanging out with a lot of Republicans and um, conservatives for many years. And what's shifted in recent times is that there's no longer this idea that people who disagree with you should be persuaded. It's that they must be defeated. So I, I don't think, and this is true on the left as well. The left has had this view and a lot of the people on the right, when they talk to me about this, they will bring up the left's attitude about this for why they have the attitude they have now. So they'll say, well, the left is only interested in defeating us. They're not interested in treating us as humans with respect, etc. So why should we do the same? And so there's this um, race to the bottom, in a sense, between these um, parties, and they've both abandoned liberalism. And the new thing is we just have to crush our enemies. And the way they crush them is just we rally as many people as already are on our side culturally as possible, and we try to, you know, pound them into the dirt. We don't try to persuade any of their people to come over. Um, we just take our base and we try to add people who are along the edges of that base. And then we just try to pound the other people. And that's, that's it. That is absolutely correct. And, and I've seen that. And I think um, that's probably why you're getting a lot of people these days who are who call themselves politically homeless, both from the right or from the left, right? Yeah. And it's... Well, it's like you ignore the other half, right? If if you're just going to win, you still live with these people. And I've heard even amongst um, Republicans talking about, well, maybe it's time. And, and also people on the left, you know, maybe it's time for us to they have their states and we'll live side by side. And, but yeah. we'll govern ourselves separately and, you know, we'll just separate into, sep- you know, and, and they're they're fine with it. And it's almost like, oh my gosh, like what's happening? Right. I increasingly hear that. And I hear that especially on the right, but um, the left has, uh, this is part of their mentality too. But there's no way to divide the country like that because a lot of the differences are um, urban versus suburban versus rural. They're not just like one state versus another state. So even within a state like Michigan, you're going to find people who have vastly different views depending on whether they live within the city limits or outside the city limits of, say, Grand Rapids, where where I uh, the area where I live. So I I don't think it can be resolved that way. Um, ultimately, the best way for us to live together peacefully is a decentralized system where we still um, have a lot of shared interests as a country and as a state, for example, the state of Michigan, but where a lot of decisions are made as close to home as possible. And that's essentially what was envisioned when the constitution was written, this kind of um, decentralization. But as the country has gotten bigger and as the country has gotten more diverse, strangely, people have moved away from this model and instead want not a decentralized system, but um, total separation or total integration. In other words, they either want like we're either like we're all going to totally separate from each other and not have any, anything to do with each other or it's going to be one size fits all. Just there's Washington, D.C. and it decides everything for everyone. Mm-hmm. 
and both of those models are bad. The, neither neither of those models works where you just have Washington deciding everything or another model where everyone is totally separate and um, there's no real interaction between people who have differences. Yeah, it's kind of just it made me think of like community newspapers, for example, right? The, the, the reason that they serve, I, I think they're they're quite wonderful because they serve that community because they understand it, that they're part of it versus like, if you have this big government system, um, then, you know, they, they don't understand the people on the ground. And so they don't serve them. And I kind of agree with you about the centralized, decentralized system. It seems like we're trying to go in these directions, but, um, in very, in various areas, you know, social media as well. And of course with cryptocurrency i don't know what your views on that are (laughs) well i'm for cryptocurrency i just think that sometimes people confuse decentralization with isolation with this idea that we are all just on our own doing our own thing and decentralization is not about isolation it's actually about cooperation and community building Uh, it's just that um you you now have these forces on the right and the left that I think are pushing for either total um, integration in the sense of one unit that decides everything for everyone and it's at the highest level possible. And the left tends to push for this a lot more than the right. Just Washington, D.C. will decide everything and that's that. And then you have others who are saying, um, no, we just need to be sort of isolated units. We do our own thing. Um, we don't want to have anything to do with you people. You people are nuts. We're going to do our thing and we're totally separate. Um, there are some people on the right who also believe in just a one-size-fits-all nationalist sort of system. But in any case, both of those models, whether it's like the nationalist, just one size for everything, or the um, total isolation model, those aren't really good models for – modern society. They're not good for building happiness and prosperity and progressing. Like we need to work together as human beings. And the way you do that is by allowing for cooperation, allowing for people to work together without feeling like someone is forcing them into relationships. And and I think that's where decentralization comes in, why it's such a, a such a powerful model and it's it's the idea the founders really had. Um, they never implemented it perfectly, obviously, um, or well. But today, I think we have more of an ability to implement it than ever before in a in a way that would be successful. Um, and so, you know, that's that's my hope. And I'm I, I I'm seeing the battle lines being drawn between liberalism and illiberalism, and I think people who are not liberal in in a classical sense of the word are really against this decentralized um cooperative model they they're more for just you know crush your enemies and sep- and separate and to the extent you can't crush them separate from them i wonder if some of the, what we're saying is as a result of a loss of, of community, because I think people, you know, 
People used to live in neighborhoods where they knew their neighbors. And I'm, and, and I'll say this, I'm a total loner. I, I don't talk to my neighbors. I'm, I'm a bad, I'm a bad example of this, but you know, people would either have a community that came from the neighborhood that they live in or maybe church or, or something like that versus nowadays, I think, and especially, and I think one of the reasons we saw an escalation of these like feuds is, is social media because suddenly people found themselves um their community has become basically social media or facebook a lot mm -hmm. of people don't even you know see each other in person anymore um and so you know maybe some people do still have communities if they're part of a club or you know sports or something like that but i think there's less of a sense of community and maybe some of these things are as a result of that when you're having conversations with people in you know in a chat room or on twitter or facebook you know you don't have that back and forth mm -hmm. uh you don't get a sense of who they are as a person like people you know i can share my most controversial points of views i mean they're not that controversial but it, but i can do that in person with most people and i'll be fine but if i do it online i will not be fine <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah no i there's no doubt social media has driven a lot of this um and we do tend to feel more like the online community is our real community. And that's a pretty like horrendous community in many ways um, compared to what we might find if we just walk outside our door. What do you think about, and I know you've written about this, um, distrust in institutions. Do you think that this is a positive thing or a negative thing for society? <laughs> I think it's both because I think some level of trust is actually necessary for a healthy society, but the distrust is earned. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should always be skeptical of what an institution does and demand uh, a level of transparency, which a lot of people have not done and sort of blindly followed. And then other people have noticed that, hey, we're being either lied to or just have, there's in that level of transparency, there's manipulation. So they lo lost that trust. But the problem with that, um, some of that trust is needed, but it's just it needs to be earned um, because I see people now, you know, especially going into the realms of conspiracy theories and things like that. And part of that was created by, um, you know, by the heart, by being lied to, you know, and now mm -hmm. they are more willing to go to these extremes. But we have certain, especially geopolitical situations right now. And I see the discourse around that. And a lot of the discourse, a lot of the people who are sort of veering into these black holes uh, of especially, weirdly enough, propaganda, um, it's because they don't believe the official narrative. Now, I think every narrative has to be challenged and questioned. And I remember when I was challenging and questioning some of these narratives, I would get called a conspiracy theorist or, you know, or other things. And I'm like, well, no, I, I should be able to ask the question. Doesn't mean I think this. It means I'm trying to figure it out. Um, but a lot of people I feel like have um, as a consequence of sort of, you know, truth being constantly misrepresented and manipulated have now have no trust and when they are told something that is the truth 
or close to the truth, they don't believe it anymore. Yeah. And I, I think what you're saying is we should always question and challenge these institutions and um, not necessarily trust and perhaps distrust a lot of the actors within those institutions, but that institutions can also have value. And if you completely tear everything down, um, for example, if the Constitution doesn't mean anything anymore or um, Congress or your local community um, government or whatever it might be, if all of these things mean nothing, that can also um, tear society apart because now everyone is just uh, – it's like every man for himself. Yeah. Well, there's been such a top-down kind of, um, especially, in, I won't get too much into it, but like the pandemic in particular was an example of like this, um, there were a lot of things that didn't necessarily make sense. And rather than explain them and address them and, and have a level of transparency and honesty, and if you get things, listen, like we can get things, people can get things wrong. You're learning, you're getting more information, but that because there wasn't that transparency and there was a very manipulative sort of narrative and there was, you know, obviously certain rules that were put into place that didn't always make sense. Um, and I think that earned a lot of distrust. I think that did mm -hmm. such tremendous damage to discourse and people's trust in the institutions. And of course, people also have that with like media uh, where, you know, I don't I don't think it's so much as uh, blatant lies. I, most of the time, I, I know there are some, actually. Mm -hmm. I followed certain stories where I couldn't believe, you know, what was printed. And I can't believe that it's just completely just ignorance or mis errors. Um, but there wasn't any accountability for that either. So that yeah. caused them. So would you attribute... Uh, at least some of this, maybe a lot of it, to the fact that people in power seem to subscribe to this idea of the noble lie, that sometimes there are lies they feel they need to tell because it's in the best interests of society, and if people knew the truth, it would somehow be more harmful to them than if they're told this other thing. Yeah, I actually wrote about this. That's exactly the words I think I use, uh, noble lie. I I know for a fact that that is what a lot of journalists think. They It surprised me because I guess I saw journalism as, as a way of trying to figure out the truth, right? And mm -hmm. ultimately, that's the mission. It's like you want the truth. And maybe you shed light on something that other people don't know about, you know, because you find it interesting. So there's that too. But a lot of journalists, especially sort of the, the new generation of journalists, they really do see themselves as active as journalists and they speak about that openly. So they don't think that their responsibility is the truth. Their responsibility is the net benefit. And so now they're deciding, you know, what you should or shouldn't see based on whether they think it's for the best of, you know, their readers or not. And that's a very dangerous thing to do because now you're not dealing with truth. You're dealing with somebody's shaping of a narrative that they think is good. And you can't predict that. You can't predict the consequences of, of, of what that narrative is going to do. 
So all you can do is really, you know, you can't play God in that way. So mm -hmm. really what, you know, that's why I'm, I feel so strongly about the truth being the priority above all else. And this, this also happens within government, right? You had officials like with COVID saying things like, don't wear masks. They're not useful in any way um, early on. And then they admit later, no, we thought the masks were useful, but we just wanted to make sure that the medical community had enough of them. Right. Well, and that was, I mean, from the get-go, that, that was a big one. And, and a lot of people couldn't get over that lie. Um, and and now, it, that's, it's understandable. Get... It's understandable why people would not get over it. Because you're asking people to upend their lives in many ways. And it turns out that these people are openly admitting that they're lying to the public yeah. in order to get a particular outcome that they want. And also, what do they think of the public? They think that if they told the public, hey, listen, we have a shortage of masks because we want, you know, we, we need you to come together with us and help us, you know, support the medical community because they are treating these patients. They're ground zero. We want to make sure that we have enough masks for them. So they're assuming that if they said that people will act in their own self-interest and some people will. But I think a lot of people actually would have uh, not hoarded masks. And then now after that, you know, then we with the mask, we had so much flip flopping, you know, and ultimately mm -hmm. like the masks and the mask mandates in particular just never really made a lot of sense. Like I talked to people in South Korea and they had the N, um, N95s. That's what they've been wearing this whole pandemic and their governments, um, they disallowed export of these masks and they also subsidized the you know the production of these masks so everyone had one it was it, and it was affordable and those are masks that are like scientifically <laughs> proven to work mm -hmm. with the other kinds of masks that were you know in the US or in Canada the ones that were mandated were just anything <laughs> and so that didn't make much sense because we know it doesn't <laughs> work right. equally so in Canada, to what extent were were all of you following Dr. Fauci and paying attention to all of this stuff? Is, is that what dominates your medical discussions during COVID or is it Canadian stuff? I think Canada in general is dominated by U.S. Uh, politics. It's funny. Somebody gave me a hard time for tweeting about American politics and uh, and and that that I was like not disclosing that I'm Canadian and why do you even care about it? Shouldn't you be tweeting about Canadian politics? Well, the thing is we are just, we are so affected by everything the U S does. So Fauci or, or American politics like that just affects Canada so much. So Canadians tend to know more about American what's going on in the U S than they do in Canada, which isn't the great thing either. We should know what's going on mm -hmm. domestically until we had uh, the whole Trudeau <laughs> situation recently um i think people were not paying that much attention domestically but yeah, yeah we're very influenced by that but you know but our guidelines are also based on our local and everyone had such different situations too like i didn't even realize how what the rules were in quebec i mean they had curfew and they literally arrested people for, you know, if they walk their dogs after 10 p.m. And they, um, in the park, you still had to wear a mask. Yeah, and, and those, the outdoor mask rules never made any sense. 
No, because like you it. look at the studies and it's like you have less than 1% of getting it if you're next to someone who's actually got it, right? So right, and you're out you're out in the sky and air all around you. It's like yeah. it, it doesn't it doesn't Airplanes add up. Airplanes too, apparently, because <laughs> the filtering systems are actually one of the safest places to be um, if you weren't wearing one. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about free speech mm-hmm. and – um, the First Amendment, at least as uh, Americans understand it, I don't. Uh, in in Canada, I don't know. Um, you know, we have how less, you're... less of it than you. Do. Yeah, so like I don't know how how it plays over there, but in the United States, one of the problems we face whenever discussing free speech is that people conflate the First Amendment with free speech, and so they think that if something complies with the First Amendment that it is not, therefore, a violation of free speech, even though these are separate concepts. The First Amendment protects free speech in a particular context when the government is um, trying to censor or ban or whatever it might be doing. But um, it doesn't affect other types of free speech, doesn't protect other types of free speech, but that doesn't mean that the other free speech isn't worthy of... um, protection or security or whatever it might be. And, and in the United States, unfortunately, because the first amendment is such a um, topic of discussion, whenever free speech comes up and I believe me, I'm a big first amendment supporter and no one's going to go to bat for the first amendment more than, than I do on Twitter and trying to explain what it really means and how profound it is and how much it does offer protection to the American people. So I go to bat for the First Amendment every day. But there's another type of free speech outside of the First Amendment that's also worthy of protection. And what happens is when someone like Elon Musk, for example, the other day talks about free speech, people will mock him because he's saying free speech in the context of Twitter. And they don't understand how it could be free speech when it's happening on Twitter. So Yeah, that happens every day. <laughs> right. So this is, I think, a growing problem that there's this intolerance of speech unless um, unless it's a very particular type of speech that people think is protected by the First Amendment. There's this sense now that other types of speech, it's okay to silence because it's not First Amendment protected speech. It's called consequence culture, I believe. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it, yeah. every time somebody brings up free speech in the context of something like Twitter, somebody else will chime in and say, well, that's not the First Amendment. The government isn't putting you in jail for for saying this. And um, I am such a believer in the in, you know, in the First Amendment, because especially coming from a country that certainly did not have that. <laughs> and you, you, you certainly could pay some severe consequences for for speaking. Um, the other kind of free speech I, I absolutely value as well, because that's more it allows us as a society to sort of develop our ideas. And if we don't have it as a society, we cannot do that. Um, So, you know, somebody asked me once, like, to what extent free speech do I believe in? And I said, you know, even, even like, basically nothing that it's, you know, goes against the law, basically, or incites violence or some poor action. Now you can kind of condemn, um, you know, if somebody's saying something racist or, but a lot of times the kind of speech that gets 
a silenced is just somebody trying to explore their thoughts, having, you know, just blurting out an idea and even a bad idea or a stupid idea or an offensive idea. I think it's really important to be able to say those things because then you can also hear the other side of what people think. Right. And that's but how people you, that's how people learn, right? Because exactly. otherwise you might keep it in your head and you're thinking this you're thinking something totally crazy but you're not willing to talk about it. Well, two things are going to happen, right? <laughs> you're either going to keep if you're afraid to say it, you're either going to keep it in your head or you're going to talk to other people who are probably going to share your views. And so you create this little echo chamber, which is how people get more radical. Right. But if this person who has this like crazy thought says it to me, Maybe I'll push back on it. You know, I won't cancel them. <laughs> I won't. I won't go after them. And we have a chance to sort of have see the idea through. And I've had bad ideas. I've I had stupid thoughts. I'm sure. And I've had other people, you know, explain to me the other position of it. And I considered it, and I've changed my mind on certain things. So you need that. But what's happening is like, you know, if you're afraid to share that, if if the immediate action isn't to, um to sort of discuss the idea, but actually to attack the person, which is what I see happens. It's like, if you voice something that's maybe offensive, let's say, then you're a bad person. You're, you're instead of that thought being a bad thought, right? So instead of engaging with the thought, they engage with you as a person as a whole, and suddenly, by saying that one thing, you as a human being, you know, are, are a horrible person. Right. And then, of course, it's easy to, then to say, well, bad people shouldn't speak. Like, we're just <laughs> going to write, like, this is a bad person, so we just want them basically removed from discourse. Yeah. And and I think that's a, that's a really dangerous way to look at things, especially because – the people in charge will differ from time to time and you're not always going to be the one in control of who's a bad person and, and who's not. Exactly. <laughs> you should always imagine like who, who do you not like who's, who might actually gain control and do you want them to have that power? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's important. And I think uh, when you're looking at a platform like Twitter um it is really the public square at this point, but we're seeing it, you know, in, in conversations on all social media where just there's this just general intolerance towards ideas and points of views that um, don't represent the group that's the most vocal. You know, it's usually the most vocal and aggressive. And so people have a lot of different points of views on, on different topics, especially, you know, the subjects that are deemed controversial that really shouldn't even be controversial. We should just be able to talk about it and the best ideas should be able to win. But instead, because people have become so scared to speak, because there are these like terrible consequences of bullying, harassment and, you know, lots of things these ideas that actually are quite dangerous for our societies become more and more radical and don't and they sort of win over yeah they get the power and at least for my part i want to be clear that i'm not calling for some kind of government solution to fix all of this cuz i think people who 
see what's going on on Twitter and social media, they are often jumping to the conclusion that, well, government needs to pass this law or that law to address this problem. A lot of times when you look at what's being proposed, it's either not tenable under the First Amendment in the United States, what's what's being suggested, suggested or it will cause other harms. And so I'm not a person who's out there jumping up and saying, like, we need government to step in and fix all of this. I think that uh, the market does a very good job over time of addressing a lot of this stuff. Companies that get too big, that don't function properly, they eventually do lose out to some other competitor. I've seen this enough times in my life. I remember when AOL was going to take over the world. And, um, you know, like we've had lots of companies over time that have come and gone and they were supposedly going to take over the whole world. And that was that. And it's the end. And um, and it, it just didn't happen. Eventually, someone else came up with a better idea. And I think that is definitely true in this space. Um, I think that smart people can come up with good ideas and the market can come up with something that is different from what we have. That's a very libertarian point of view right there. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, I, but I am a big believer in liberalism as a libertarian in the sense that Twitter should be a liberal place. It should be an open place. It should be an open environment. This doesn't mean I'm going to um, bring the strong arm of government down and say, like, this is what you must do. I am just saying that it is not viable as a place in the long run if it continues to operate in a way that's viewed as illiberal, as attempting to silence people. And I, I don't want to just speak about Twitter. This is true of all social media and a lot of um, tech companies. If they continue to be viewed as antagonistic to the public public's concerns about speech, I don't think they'll survive. I think that people will come up with alternatives. And there are plenty of smart people out there working on these alternatives. So I just wanted to make that point. But another another thing that is happening, I've noticed a lot on social media, especially on Twitter, actually, and I'm sure on Facebook to, to a large extent as well, is audience capture. And I don't know if you've written about this or thought about this as an issue, but increasingly what happens is people get sucked into this echo chamber of people who are following them and liking their stuff and commenting in a positive way. And then they build an audience that shares those viewpoints. And as soon as the speaker on Twitter strays from those viewpoints, those people go on the attack and that sends a signal to the speaker. Oh, that was a bad thing for me to say. I must say more of the good things that people will like and will retweet and, and continue to engage with in a positive way. A hundred percent. And I think also um, these platforms sort of cultivate this, because I know that certain like posts or tweets are going to get massive engagement. And those are usually the things that are hotter takes. Right. And I don't necessarily want to do those because I don't want to do it just to get the, the clicks. Um, but I see people, um, especially bigger, bigger accounts where like they often become more radical in their points of views because that gets more engagement because it's, it, you get that little boost yeah. of dopamine. So I've seen that happen to a lot of people. And if they stray from that narrative of whatever they captured, people 
sort of attack them, even with me, like because I had a more mainstream point of view on Ukraine and people got used yep. to me having other kinds of takes. A lot of people got mad at me <laughs> and stopped following <laughs> me and were said things to me. I try to keep, you know, there are some people who I engage with who uh, don't agree with me on a lot of things <laughs> and I hope to keep them around. But but certainly a lot of people do end up capturing others who agree with them. I try to, you know, I'm hopeful that there's people who just want to have their want to explore ideas. Cause I don't, I personally don't know that I have one particular point of view on things. I mm -hmm. just, it's really all over the place, but I've also noticed with a lot of the newer platforms that have popped up, for example, getter, I signed up just to like check it out and realize, well, that's a very conservative, <laughs> blatantly <laughs> political platform. I, even if I was conservative, I wouldn't really want to be there because I want to be able to engage with everybody in different points of views. And, you know, the people who challenged me on Ukraine, I'm grateful for that too, because, you know, I looked into what their assertions were and I learned more and I'm able to come to a stronger point of view on my own as a result. So yeah, provided they're doing it in a respectful way, you know, they're exactly. respecting your disagreements and because it can get, it can get very hostile out there. Yeah. And what ends up happening is it's easy for someone who has built an audience like you have, or like I have to uh, just get captured by that audience. As soon as you say something that is outside of their expectation, now they come for you. They're like, we thought you were this kind of person, but actually you're this kind of person and now you're bad. And I've seen this time and again with uh, members of Congress or people in the media where they, they do get captured. And often capture happens, I've noticed, when someone does something that is actually principled and it gets attention from the other side and then those people rush in to support that person – and then that person realizes, oh, I can get more out of this than I could in the old ways, you know, in, in my old method of operating. Mm -hmm. um, I've certainly seen this, for example, with Adam Kinzinger um, in Congress, where here's a guy who for four years was not really criticizing Donald Trump, um, except when it came to a few military tweets here and there or whatever. Um, there were a couple of pet issues where maybe he'd criticize. He didn't vote for any impeachment, and he voted for Donald Trump twice. He voted for him in 2016 and in 2020. And then now he's all over Twitter and all, all over the media saying Donald Trump is the worst president that's ever existed, and can you believe this guy? And um, you know he's a charlatan, etc. And he says it now because he's get he gets these hits, right? Yeah. And that's his audience now. If you look at his followers on Twitter, they are mostly people who like this stuff. If he said something different, they would all attack him. So he has no choice. He's got one direction to go in, and that's to go with them. And this kind of thing, uh, you know, I have some experience seeing how this kind of thing develops because when I supported uh, the impeachment of Donald Trump, I had a mad rush of people into my Twitter who hold views that aren't necessarily aligned with mine on a whole bunch of issues, but they agreed with me on Donald Trump. Right. And they may have agreed 
Some of them for principled reasons, but I think a lot of them also for partisan reasons. And they're rushing in and then they don't understand why, if I felt this way about Donald Trump, why I would then feel these other ways about other issues. Like, you know, we thought you were one of the good ones. Right. And it's easy to get captured because when that becomes a substantial enough and active enough portion of your social media audience, it's easy to just get swept up in it and think, well, if I just keep tweeting the stuff they want, I'm going to get 20,000 retweets and 50,000 retweets. My biggest retweets were from that group, like in, in terms of my account. I believe that. And that, so, that's when you become a drifter, right? Yeah. So it's <laughs> easy It's easy for people to fall into that that mode of thinking. And, you know, I'm principled enough to say, like, I'm not interested in that. Like, if those people don't want to follow me on Twitter anymore, that's that's their business. I did the principled thing with Donald Trump, and I'm going to do the principled thing now, mm-hmm. even if they're upset about it. But there are a lot of people who are getting captured. And I think it's very um, destructive for our culture, the way it's happening. Like I, I'm just seeing this in real time with some major officials just getting captured by their audience. Yeah, no, I see that all the time. And, and journalists yeah, too. Oh, a hundred percent. And that kind of stops you from being able to explore things a little bit more openly or I think because I really don't feel like I have any real attachment to anything. Like, like I'll, Every issue for me is its own individual thing. It's kind of the problem with politics for me, too. It's like we have this very binary system where you can only go, you know, you take this set of package of things or you take that set of you know package of things. And so um, and so you have to buy into everything on the one side or the other side. I'm like, well, no, that's not how I think about things. And, and I think a lot of people probably don't think that way about things, but they have no choice. And when you're on these media, social media platforms, I definitely, I've seen people where they took stances where, you know, if they tweet certain things, they'll get hundreds and thousands of, of retweets. And as soon as they go into a different narrative, their audience like just turns on them. Yeah. It's the same person just has a different <laughs> opinion about this one thing. Right. Absolutely allow yourself to be influenced by that. Like, like you said, it's, it's just principles. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just principles, quote unquote, because a lot for a lot of people, unfortunately, they do get sucked into things. And, and also the other thing about these platforms, it's like the more, again, it's the more radical takes. It's not the nuanced takes that, uh, that um, tend to do the, the best. And they that tend to spread. Mm-hmm. And so we only really end up being exposed to these radical views and it, the algorithms reward that. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think as a result, a lot of speakers essentially on Twitter and, and in other social media are getting conditioned, um, mm-hmm. conditioned to produce certain types of content. Um, and of course, we see this in Congress, too. And that's a whole nother topic why members of Congress are increasingly conditioned to act as performers essentially rather than as legislators. You know, there's not really much of, there's not much of a benefit in being a legislator anymore. It's, it's about theatrics and performance and, and how many retweets you're going to get by saying whatever thing you're going to say. 
Well, I guess in the past, if you were like a senator, you wouldn't really have any visibility except for when you're voting on bills and, you know, occasionally maybe you'll do an interview. And now you have these like influencer (laughs) senators. Yeah. That's a really different thing. Most members of Congress 20 years ago would not even be known. Like nobody would know who they are. Um, So it's a it's a different world. Let's um, let's go to. Pedro, our next caller. Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, Pedro. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, so I have an issue. Uh, censorship, I think it's a very uh, important issue. So I have a couple of questions about censorship. Um so uh, Russia uh, is an issue that is on the news. Obviously, I, I'm a bit concerned about the, about the censorship that the, that the European Union and United Kingdom did to 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 a Russian uh, uh, channel called RT America. Uh, same here in the United States. Uh, YouTube just banned Oliver Stone and other just regular American journalists that used to work for RT America. So the, the question is, uh, what do you think are, are the causes for the, this anti-Russia censorship that we hear on the news? Uh, also another issue, that the, uh, the, the, an opera singer from uh, the, the opera in New York was fired for, for just being the Russia. For just about being Russian, so uh, so that, that that that's my question. What what are the causes and uh, what what is even the the legal framework for for example, if I was a journalist, I, I was being was fired for for being Russian. Uh, well, or I guess the legal or pro Russian. I'm sorry. Uh, was was the opera singer was she fired for being Russian or was she fired for speaking uh, in support of Russia? Uh, she was fired because she didn't uh, explicit, explicitly condemn uh, Vladimir Putin by name. Okay. She di- she released a statement that uh, she condemned the war and the invasion. But the but the the Meta Gala, I forgot her name right now. Uh, I think you can look it up. Uh, asked for a statement explicitly condemning Vladimir Putin. She said no because she's a. She admires Putin. Okay, that's her right, I guess. Uh, so that that was it. Uh, I, I really feel that we are living like the, in the, that novel, 1984, right now. Uh, the journalist Matt Taibbi wrote uh, an article about that. So, so yeah, yeah, that was my question. So, uh, for Justin, w- what do you think are the causes of this uh, anti-Russia hysteria? It reminds I was not born in the 1950s. Uh, but I guess the, there was this anti-communist uh, kind of uh, hysteria in the country. Uh, I think we are kind of uh, in this place again. I think it's a kind of yeah. uh, sad, unfortunately. So thanks, Pedro. So I would say that the cause is Russia's war on Ukraine. I think that's the cause. Um, it doesn't mean that people should be fired for holding particular viewpoints um, that people should be punished for holding particular viewpoints. I'm against all of that type of censorship. I think in the United States, um, as I'm sure Catherine feels in Canada, people should be able to speak their minds 
um, say what they believe about various things without facing um, consequences just because they have a political position. And people have all sorts of terrible political positions that I might not agree with, um, you know, when you work in any environment. So I, I'm, I'm a big believer in free speech. But the cause is, you know, anytime there's a war going on, people get that rush. People get that, um, that rush that they need to stop all, um, all of the opposition. Anyone who might be with the other side – um, in in quotes, you know, the other side, we've got to stop them and prevent them from speaking and uh, furthering the problem. So I, I think it's just human nature to fight back in this way. And it's unfortunate because we shouldn't be discriminating against people uh, just because they are of a particular nationality or because they hold particular viewpoints that we might disagree with. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And I've heard that, for example, a, restaurant, a Russian restaurant in Brooklyn, people were leaving reviews, bad reviews on purpose. And I mean, like, probably the owners of that restaurant were were people who escaped the Soviet Union, more, most likely, you know. Um, I, I think, even though I would disagree with the point of view um, about the adjuration for Putin, um you know, I think she absolutely has the right to make it and not be fired. Uh, but you were also um, talking about banning RT and um, the Oliver Stone documentary. So while I, I had mixed feelings about it, to be honest, because I think like RT, for example, is propaganda. So should you allow propaganda from a country that's attacking another country to to be allowed through. Um, and I, after some consideration, I still think that we should, because I would like to, even just for me to know, what are they telling their people, for example? What are they, what is their narrative? I think it's better to allow all content or all, you know, um, information through rather than deciding we'll block this or that. Though I, I think historically, um, during times of war, um, certainly countries did block uh, propaganda because it can influence, um, you know, people to not say support um, policies or government actions based on false information. I don't know, Justin, what what your feelings are about this particular side of things. Yeah, Pedro, could you mute your mic for a bit? Because I think we're getting some feedback. Thanks. So. Yeah, during times of war, historically, um, there's been a lot of leeway to ban things and to prevent freedom of speech. So I, I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just saying that that has been historically the case. And and so as a legal matter, if Pedro's asking as a legal matter, can governments do this kind of thing? Um, they've generally been given a lot of leeway when there's when there are war conditions and we feel like it's some kind of effort that is contrary to our national security interests or whatever. Um, from my perspective, uh, I, I agree that we should allow various viewpoints because I really believe in the power of ideas. I think that bad ideas can be defeated with good ideas. And I think it is good for people to see 
what are the different perspectives, even if those perspectives are propaganda and um, and maybe outright lies. I, I think that we should hear those things and let people fight li- fight lies with the truth. Um, that's that's what I believe in. I've always believed in that as a as a big believer in freedom of speech and the First Amendment. Uh, I agree, Justin. Just just saying. Yeah, thanks, Pedro. You. Thank you. All right, let's go to um, to Jenny. Thank you, Justin. This has been just a riveting conversation. Thanks. And Catherine, it's wonderful to hear your message. Thank um, you. I'm somebody who's been shadow banned on Twitter for the last seven years. And I have watched with horror as so many great accounts have just been completely deplatformed for what I perceive to be bogus reasons. What do you think about Elon Musk and his talk of perhaps buying Twitter and the poll he recently did and all the ins and outs of the possibilities there. I wonder if he wants to buy Twitter or build his own Twitter. I can't tell from this, uh, <laughs> from his uh, <laughs> tweets. Yeah. yeah well, from my perspective, he's better off designing something different. Um, I, I think with the new web architecture they're talking about, there's a possibility of creating a social media environment where we all control our own accounts separate from any sort of centralized system. And then we'd have the possibility of um, connecting those accounts and, and um, coordinating actions that can't be really controlled from the top, but we'd, we'd each individually have control over what we see and, and how we interact with people. Now, there's also a risk um, that people decide to only create their own echo chambers. That can happen as well. So there's no perfect situation here. But I do think that to the extent you have any sort of social media environment, you want it to be as liberal and open as possible. And by, by liberal, I mean free. Free and open and available for as many viewpoints um, as possible, where there's as little control from the top as possible. And to the extent you have any sort of um, filtering that's done by some central authority, it should be done in a transparent way, and the rules should be clear and consistent. Everyone should understand what the rules are, and they should be consistently enforced. I give as an example the fact that Donald Trump, who you know I'm no fan of, is banned from Twitter, which I think is a bad thing that he's banned from Twitter. But there are dictators and authoritarians around the world who are able to access it and say whatever they want. I mean, even Putin can uh, spout off on Twitter, but Donald Trump is not allowed to. I That inconsistency, I think, is a really bad thing for social media and uh, against the liberal values that I think they should hold. Yeah, I agree. And I think that I really love the idea of an open system. I like the idea of, of having some sort of a way of, of migrating from one place to another much easier. So, for example, something I like about Substack is that you can build a following on Substack, but you have access to all the subscribers to all their emails. 
So say you're not happy with Substack, you could move to another platform and take everyone with you. So the so the platform has to compete because now they're not sort of resting on the fact that you've now spent, you know, years building up an audience. So with Twitter, people have spent years building up an audience. It makes it very difficult to move to a new place because it sort of destroys that community. So they have to now maintain several accounts. And it, it doesn't work very efficiently. And the other thing I like... Hey, Catherine, is- your, your audio is um, a little bit wonky right now. I don't know why. Oh, okay. Okay, there. Yeah, it's I'm better. Being, yep. I'm being censored. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, yeah, they're trying to stop you. That's right. They are trying to stop you. They. Elon Musk, I think somebody like Elon Musk being uh, the person to create the next uh, network, I think is a good thing because he is kind of nonpartisan versus like I think a lot of these other platforms that I've seen um, happen, they do become echo chambers. And you really want somebody who will get people excited from all walks of life, uh, all kinds of ideologies. and is has a commitment an absolute commitment to free speech and transparency and kind of open systems yeah so before we close out i want to ask you and we'll i'll have you on sometime again in the future i hope and we'll we'll discuss even more um about the futurist stuff but one of the things that i think about is whether humanity has sort of reached is its peak in basically a wholly or mostly organic form. In other words, where we are basically um, in the same sort of human condition that we've been in for thousands and thousands of years, and that maybe we're nearing the point where there's so much augmentation to the human form that we're not really the same species. Well, you know, it's funny, the, the question that everybody was talking about recently is like, what is a woman? But I think we're going to be talking about the question, what is a human pretty soon? <laughs> because I do think we are kind of reaching um, technologically at a certain point where I think we're going to have this is, you know, if we can upload the brain, we can already do um gene slice, spicing, slicing, all that stuff. You can, you know what is a human if you know is it okay is it morally correct to pick an eye color of your child is it you know if there is some kind of a condition let's say adhd and you can correct that before the child is born are you doing a good thing or not because if that child is you know some people see that as their superpower so to what extent can we as humans be involved in that way and then I think our brains are just, um, you know, if we can upload our brain, it changes everything. Our human form is, is something completely different. We can be in any body. Um, we can live forever if we choose to. And a lot of people, I've asked people this, and a lot of people don't want to do that. And some people do. Um, so it it's raises so many questions. But one of the things is also we are racing towards a lot of these technologies. I do think that a lot of it is going to be possible in the very near future. 
And there hasn't been sort of a sense of cohesion on the moral questions on the ethical side of it as to what is acceptable, what is okay, how should we approach it? Should it have regulations or, you know, I, I wonder, what do you think as a libertarian, like, uh, should we allow a free for all genetic modification for, for anybody or should we have restrictions on that? I think it's all very complicated um, to take that world and try to squeeze it into our current parameters of how we view things. Like I'm not sure that any of us are ready for this or what it means for humans and how um, ethics, you know, break down when you have a totally different form and the, the entire environment is very different. So for example, we may live inside a metaverse Right. Um, you may have Facebook essentially creating its own world inside a computer and it's possible people essentially reside in there. And then is Facebook in charge of the world? I mean, and then what how does the government Facebook's a government then? Right. And it has its own jurisdiction and its own currency. Um, there are so many things to tackle here that I'm not sure where to start even uh, when trying to apply libertarian principles to all of this stuff. So I do worry about it in the sense that I think a lot of things can break down very fast and our very sense of being human may dissolve. Like we, we don't actually uh, think about humankind in the same way. Our morals change. Everything changes very rapidly. Um, so I'm not sure what to make of it and I'm not sure how to apply all of say libertarianism to some organism that is very different from what we've known humans to be for a very long time. Yeah. And my concern is sometimes these technologies, they sort of develop because it's possible and we don't think through the, the implications of them by the time we, we experience these like situations that are problematic it, it's too far gone sort of the genie is out of the lamp and i think we saw that with the development of the internet and in particular social media because you know there's so many beautiful wonderful things about it i mean we wouldn't have this conversation if it wasn't for that but also there are some damaging things about it. I think the algorithms and the echo chambers are incredibly damaging and how information can travel too quickly and unchecked is, is also uh, detrimental. And I think a lot of these things were just not even predicted. They just sort of happened and evolved. And there wasn't a mechanism by which it could sort of be corrected or thought through. And, and once that happens, when it's all kind of a free for all, what do you do? Yeah, and I, I, I hate to be the pessimist about the whole thing, but not everything has a solution. There's not necessarily a good outcome that can be produced. It may just be the case that the outcome is bad from our current moral perspective, like how humans view morals today in our sort of normal organic form may um, – it it may not comport with whatever the future holds and there may be no way to stop it though. In other words, it, it just, it might happen. Um, you may have a future, for example, where machines are in charge, but 
the fact that we might object to it doesn't mean we can stop it or there's some way around it. Uh, well, I really love, I don't know if you've seen the movie AI. Yeah, I have. Yeah, I, I kind of like, you know, I think often we think of robots as being these like inhumane, <laughs> you know, unkind. And then through that movie, we actually see that machines can be sometimes more empathetic than, mm-hmm. than human beings even. Um, so, I mean, I don't know where, where this is going to go. Exactly. And by the way, that's, that's the, at least a theme of 2001, a space odyssey, which a lot of people miss when they watch that movie, which is one of my favorite movies, because as you near the end of the film, what you find is that the computer is the one with emotions and the human is the one who's very cold. And, and so (laughs) you see this potential in the future where, humans essentially become more like machines and the computers become more like humans as we see them today. You know, I had this idea for a script that now I'm going to say it and somebody might steal it, but okay. (laughs) Um, I had this idea where you genetically modify people to be basically psychopaths, but not like the kind that go and kill people, but just don't have these kind of emotions like jealousy or, um, you know, just sadness, um, empathy. But it creates this like society that's extremely efficient. So my opening scene was going to be like there's a car accident and you see this group of people surrounding, but nobody like really reacts to it. But they just go and help the person and they do their tasks. Um, And then in the society, some people choose not to have their genes modified. So some of them hide that uh, and pretend to be modified. And some of them are sort of outcasts. So I thought that was kind of an interesting idea too. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Our emotions are not always good for us. Right. I hope no one steals your um your script here, but <laughs> but there this is why I love um sci-fi and you know I love watching um things like Black Mirror and other shows that sort of depict these dystopian futures. I I think people are often quick to dismiss these things as some kind of you know, oh this will never happen or this is exaggerated. But I'm not so sure that all that stuff is exaggerated or won't happen or won't even be worse. I mean, Black Mirror, there are so many episodes that are already happening. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, well, I've I've enjoyed um, talking to you, Catherine, and I will definitely have you on again sometime in the future. Um, you know, who knows how long this podcast goes for and how many episodes, but hopefully there will be some time down the road where we're into, you know, hundreds of podcasts and – and uh, I'll have had you on uh, several times. So I I enjoy talking to you. And there's so much more we could cover with all this um, futurist stuff that is really (laughs) an area of interest for me. So, yeah, no, I love that. And I really enjoyed it. And it's funny. We actually did talk about politics more than I think we thought we would. Yeah. (laughs) Look, I, I think, you know, it's funny. I don't think of myself at all as a political person, but the world, I mean, politics affect our daily lives. So we have to be thinking about it. I don't think we can be um, empathetic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on. And uh, I'll, I'll catch you on Twitter. Sounds good. Me too. All right. Thanks yep. for having me. Thanks. thanks. Bye. <laughs>